0: Hello, and thank you for joining us on this Christmas Sunday. Um, I was told in our staff meeting uh, this past week that my sermon last week on the incarnation, it felt like a Christmas message, and they weren't sure what I was going to say uh, this week for Christmas Sunday. Um, I felt that too, and so we'll see. We'll see what happens. And if today's sermon doesn't feel kind of Christmassy enough for you, uh, you can go to our podcast and Give that one a listen to get your your Christmas fix. But for today's message, I wanted to um, go in a slightly different direction. Rather than talk about the virgin birth and talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I want to talk about how we respond to Jesus. I want to talk about how we respond to the story of Christmas. Because as important As the history and the theology and the veracity of Christmas is, how you and I respond to the arrival of Jesus, how you and I respond to Advent, that makes all the difference in our lives. A couple of years ago, uh, a picture of a dress took social media by storm. I, I don't know if you guys remember this. Millions of people were debating on the color of the dress is it gold and white? Or was it blue and black? It started on Reddit, went on to Instagram, Facebook. I mean, even Ellen DeGeneres was was commenting. And, and the nation was forever divided. What color is this dress? And and it's crazy to think that people... I know people are like, green. Not green. Um, it's crazy to think that, that people can look at the same picture and see two completely different colored dresses. Right? Objectively, it is... One set of colors. And yet subjectively we're interpreting, we're responding to it very differently. Not long after that, an audio clip did the same thing. Remember that? Yanni or Laurel. Right? Yanni or Laurel. Funny thing about that audio clip is that um, most younger people heard Yanni and most older people heard Laurel. Right? That was the distinction. And um, I wanted to hear Yanni. (laughs) But I heard Laurel. Right, I tried again last night. I was like, all I heard was Laurel. All I heard was Laurel. Now, the dress was actually black and blue. Right? The designer was like, we don't even make that in gold and white. And some digital artists, they were like, okay. And they, they looked at the picture, took uh, pixels of it. They did the RGB color scale. And like, yep, it's black and blue objectively. Right? Objectively, that recording, you know what it said? Laurel. Older people were right, right? Not Yanni. It was Laurel. But there were plenty of people who saw and heard otherwise. And there were plenty of people who were willing to argue and debate passionately about their position and perspective. And so this is kind of the nuance. Objectively, there is truth. Right? There's absolute truth. But unless you're a robot, right, our subjectivity drives your behavior. Okay? Okay? Uh, Our experiences, your motivations, your context, your culture, your preferences, they all color how you interpret the truth. They all color how you respond to the truth. I'm not saying truth is relative, but our response to truth is subjective. And in our passage today, we're going to see three very different responses to the news that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In a way, we're going to see three different responses to the Christmas story. And I hope that as God's word is preached that we would honestly consider how we respond to Jesus. How are you responding to Jesus in your hearts, in your lives, in your actions? So if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today, Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12, and I'm also going to read verse 16. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Amen. The word of the Lord. Now, King Herod was ruling during the time of Jesus' birth. And there are two things that we should know about Herod. First, Herod was not Jewish. Very interesting that the king of Israel would be a non-Jew. He became king by the authority of the Roman government, the Roman Empire. So Israel was conquered by Rome, right? And they set up Herod as a puppet king. His mother was Arabian. His father was an Edomite. And the Edomites were descendants of Esau, right? Israel were descendants of Jacob. So if you remember that Genesis story. The second thing we need to recognize about Herod was that he was an evil man. He was an evil tyrant. When Herod became ruler, he slaughtered the remnants of Israel's dynasty so that no one would be able to challenge his claim to the throne. Herod had his own wife and three of his sons executed. And uh, probably like just one of the most detestable things, um, Herod arranged for all of the notable men in Jerusalem to be killed as soon as his death was announced. So that Israel would weep instead of rejoice on the day of his death, right? That is sadistic, right? So when Herod died, he had a decree. Make sure you kill these leaders, these notable men in Israel, because I want this country not to rejoice that I'm gone. I want them to weep. I want them to weep. As Herod was at the end of his reign, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Because of the Christmas song, We Three Kings, right, we often think that uh, these men were kings. And we just assume that there were three of them. Right? Uh, but all of the New Testament commentators, uh, they reject that. Uh, these wise men were not kings. They were actually magi. And magi were astrologer slash magicians. Okay? So they are astrologer slash magicians. They interpreted the stars. They followed the stars. And they practiced magic. Most scholars believe that these magi were from Babylon. They were from Babylon. And the only reason why we assume that there's three is because there are three gifts. There's three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Must have been three guys presenting them uh, to Jesus. But actually, scholars believe that there's actually a large caravan. The Magi, they were rolling in a squad. They were rolling in a large number together from Babylon, following the star to Jerusalem. Well, when the Magi approached Herod, they asked him, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Understandably, this troubled Herod. This bothered Herod. They're talking to the king but looking for the real king. Right? That's, that's unnerving. Right? It's like when um, Scar was threatened by news that Simba was alive in right? The Lion King. Yeah? Anyways, Disney Plus. All right. Um, All right. <laughs> Right? It, it unnerved a scar. scar. Right? Herod is threatened. Is he about to lose his kingdom? Is someone going to overtake him? Is there a new rival to his throne? And so Herod quickly devises a plan to find out where this baby was born and then terminate him. He finds out from the Jewish religious leaders, the high priests and the scribes. That the Messiah was born in Bethlehem according to the prophecy in Micah 5. And then he goes to the Magi and he asks, when did you see that star? Right? When did you start following that star from Babylon here to Jerusalem? And so what he's doing, is he's trying to find out how old this baby might be. Right? The date of this baby's birth. Once the Magi didn't return to tell him where Jesus was. As we read in verse 16... Herod had every baby boy, two years old or younger, killed in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. In a way, Herod believed in the birth of Jesus more than anyone. Right? I mean, it, it's an odd way to say it, but, but he believed in the birth of Jesus as the king of the Jews more than anyone. If he didn't, he would have just dismissed the Magi. He'd be like, You guys are just superstitious, weird, foreign star chasers, right? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have to worry about that, right? You're as good as like Miss Cleo, right? Uh, in our, no, you're a little old for that, a little young for that. Um, and he would have been like, Hey, I'm not even Jewish. I don't care what Micah the prophet says. I don't care what the high priest or the scribe says. He could have just dismissed that prophecy as just a religious myth. But because Herod did believe, right, because he did believe, he took extreme measures to try and kill baby Jesus. He knew Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. And this is the first point. This is the first response to the birth of Jesus. It's a response of hostility. It's seeing Jesus as king as a threat to his kingdom. And there's something that we need to understand. Jesus was not only a threat to Herod's kingdom. He's a threat to ours. He's a threat to our small, personal, little kingdoms. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, if you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is the king, then someone's got to give in. Someone has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. It's like that game we used to play as children, King of the Hill. What is the objective of that game? Push everyone out of your way and be on top. There can only be one, right? Like that movie, The Highlander, back in the day. There can only be one. And so what do you do? You go and kill every other rival to that claim. The kingly authority of Jesus. It triggers deep resistance within the human heart. It triggered Herod, and it actually triggers us as well. You see, we can think about the kingship of Jesus. We can sing about the kingship of Jesus. We can imagine that as being just a really good and pleasant and awesome experience. But when you start to live out the implications of Jesus being your king, Jesus have authority over you, Jesus reigning over your life, that can get very uncomfortable that can get very uncomfortable because we all have our own little kingdoms maybe it's your family maybe it's your marriage maybe it's your children and you want to design that you want to craft that and cultivate that in a way that you imagine for your family for your children, I want to live in this city, send my kids to this school, have them grow up, go to this college, have these habits, hobbies, X, Y, and Z. And that's your plan for your children in your kingdom. Others of us, maybe your kingdom isn't your family, right? Maybe it's your career. And you've been mapping it out since grade school. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. I want to be an architect. I want to be a pastor, said no one, right? <laughs> All right. And, 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 and you work. And you sacrifice college, grad school, applications, interviews, whatever it might be. It's your career. You have goals. You have plans. It's your kingdom. For others of you, your kingdom may not even be family, career, whatever it might be. It's just my body, right? My body is a temple. I want to look a certain way. I want to be able to do certain things. I want to project a certain kind of image. I want to live a certain kind of lifestyle. And so we diet, we exercise, we shop, we dress, we present ourselves according to our desires. Because this is your kingdom. Your body is your kingdom. Your image is your kingdom. When sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, sin did something. our hearts it bent our hearts inward rather than loving God and loving others as we were created to do we we love ourselves our hearts are caving in on ourselves and rather than allowing God to rule over us as our creator God to rule over us as our king we out of sin and pride we want to rule over ourselves We want to do what's right according to our eyes. And this is what makes Christianity difficult. Non-Christians and Christians, we all struggle with the same desire to rule. We struggle with the same desire to control. And what Christianity does, what the gospel does, what the new life in Christ does is reorient our hearts. right? To be out of just self-love and caving in on ourselves, reorient our hearts the way that they were created to be, to love God, to love others, to serve God, and to serve others. And that requires the submission of our wills. It requires that we step aside as kings or queens, my queen, right? Queens of our lives, and we allow Christ to be king. For Jesus to be our king means that we surrender our authority to him. It means, as the Heidelberg Catechism aptly and beautifully states, I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that, though? You are not your own. I am not my own. Your children do not belong to you. Your spouse doesn't belong to you. You belong to Jesus. Jesus, our King. Jesus, our Bridegroom. How many of us, though, like it when people tell us what to do? None of us, right? No one likes being bossed around. No one likes being told what to do. One of the first quibs we learn as kids are, you're not the boss of me, right? You're not the parents. Have any of your kids said that to you? Right? Oh, right? That, that's, that's not just pat your head type of response, right? You're not the boss of me. It's the cry for autonomy, It's the cry to be king over your life and not let anyone else rule and reign over you. I struggle with this as well. It's it's true in my family. Church, did you know there's only two people in my life that I try to, like, have authority over and command, right? The first is not my wife. The first is my son, Seth. He's 11 months old, and he doesn't listen to me, right? I try to tell him what to do, where not to go. Don't touch the trash can. Don't put that in your mouth. He doesn't listen to me. I am not his king. And the second person in my family is my dog, Piper, right? And she only listens when I have a treat. But when I have a treat, she listens real good, right? She listens real good. I do not try to tell my wife to do things, right? Uh, But that's also why we don't fight very often, right? Uh, She can tell me to do stuff. She can command me. She's like, Michael, take out the trash. Michael, take out the dog. Michael, leave. (laughs) Or no, she doesn't say leave. (laughs) Anyways. Um, And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. Right? But when I want her to do something, right, do you know what I do? I ask politely, right, like a real man, right? I ask politely because her, her language, she's a respect me. She's a respect me. And so if my tone, if my approach is off and she senses that, like, that, that threat that I'm trying to just command her and rule over her, oh, man, the fight is on. The fight is on. So I've learned to always ask and really watch my tone. Um, but this is why Jesus says, right, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the call to discipleship, okay? It's not an invitation to receive Jesus' spiritual advice. It's not an invitation to let Jesus offer you some life lessons, to be a life coach and offer improvement and enhancement. Jesus came so that you would experience his lordship, his kingship, his reign, and his authority. He came to be our King, and we need to confess that we're actually quite uncomfortable with this. We're quite resistant to His authority. Friends, church, where in your life do you struggle with the authority of Jesus? Let's do a little bit of an inventory. Where are you trying to reign? Where are you trying to control things? Okay, here's a little test. Where might you find yourself saying, I know what Jesus says, but fill in the blank. I know what the Bible says, but I got to buy this. I got to do this. I got to go there. We have to experience this. I need to make this decision. I need to go in this direction. I know Jesus, but you fill in that blank and that's your little kingdom. That's your area where you're saying, God, this is mine. This is my project, my space. You fill in that blank and you will identify your resistance to Jesus. You fill in that blank and you will see your sin and your idolatry. The kingdom of Jesus is a threat to our kingdoms. But the good news of this is this. When you surrender your life and your kingdom To the kingship of Jesus, you get to serve a good king. You get to serve a just king. You get to experience a king who doesn't just make campaign promises to you. You get to experience a king who can and will protect you. A king who can and will provide for you. So yes, Jesus is a threat to our kingdoms. But ultimately, he is a savior from our kingdoms. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you to waste your life building your little kingdom, your kingdom of sand, your kingdom that will not last into eternity, your kingdom that will rust and perish and decay. The second response we see to Jesus and his birth is indifference. The first was hostility. The second is indifference. In verse four, we are told, that Herod, King Herod, he assembled all the uh, chief priests and scribes of the people and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And he lied. He's like, yeah, just find him. And once you do, uh, I'll, I'll come back to me because I want to go and worship too. I want to pay homage to this king. Now, these chief priests and scribes, they were the religious leaders of Israel. And they knew the prophecy off the top of their heads. They weren't going to like BibleGateway.com and trying to figure out where this prophecy was and where the Messiah was. These were experts in the law. They knew the law. They knew the wisdom literature. They knew the words of the prophets. And so they quote Micah 5.2 and they tell Herod he was born in Bethlehem. And he will be a shepherd to his people. Now here is what's tragic about the scribes and the chief priests. After they offer and confirm the location of Jesus' birth, they do nothing. They disappear. They answered the Bible question correctly, and then they went on with their lives as if that was all it took. Make the right answer about Jesus, and you are good. They weren't even curious to see if the prophecy was actually being fulfilled. They should have joined the Magi. To go to Bethlehem, shouldn't they have? They, as the rulers of Israel, as people who were supposed to be hoping for the Messiah and looking for the great Redeemer and King of Israel, they should have been excited. They they should have been filled with hope and expectation, but they don't even go. They are completely indifferent to the birth of Jesus. Do you know how far Bethlehem was to Jerusalem? Five miles. Five miles they wouldn't travel five miles to go and see whether or not the Messiah was born. Whether or not the Christ had actually come. They were indifferent. One pastor writes this, Sometimes those who know the most about the faith in their minds, they know it the least in their hearts. There's so many of us, friends. We think Christianity, we think spiritual maturity is knowing the right answers about God knowing the right answers from the Bible, right? And our lives, our hearts are completely contrary to the confession of our lips. Friends, are you indifferent to Jesus? Are you indifferent to the birth of Christ, the life, the death, the resurrection? Are you indifferent to the power and message of Christmas? Here's the test. Here's the test. When you hear about Jesus... What effect does it have on you? Does it make you want to seek him more? Does it make you want to pursue him more, to know him more? Or when you hear about Jesus in a sermon, in a Bible study, in a song, or maybe a friend comes up and and tells you about about, about an experience, a growth, a renewal, an encouragement that they experience from their faith walk, are you like, oh, that's good for you, but I'm going to go back to work. That's good for you. I'm going to go grab something to eat and get back on my phone and, you know, play my my little games, right? How do you respond when you hear about the person and work of Jesus? You see, responding to Jesus indifferently, in a way, it's no different than Herod, who fought to try and keep his kingdom. Yes, Herod was hostile towards Jesus, but his goal was the same. I want to maintain the status quo, live my life, be king over my life. And you may not be hostile against Jesus, but in your indifference, you're doing the same thing. I don't want anything to change. I like things the way they are. I want to keep living my life, doing my thing. I don't want to be disturbed or disrupted, so I will not. I will not change. I'll be indifferent. That's good for you. I'm glad you were blessed. I'm glad you're encouraged. I'm glad that the Bible is the word of God, but I'm not going to read it. I'm glad that you're telling me each week that we have a God who has loved us so much that in Advent, he moved towards us in grace and in power. And you're like, that's cool. I guess that means I can just sit here still and do nothing. Friends, this is unnatural for us. You see, in, 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 in the regular areas of life, when someone tells us that something is beautiful, when someone tells us that something is life-changing or amazing and that that is available to us, it's one thing to be like, oh, yeah, that's over on Mars. And you're like, thanks, good. Yeah, that does nothing for me. But if someone says, you can have it. You can experience it. And you can taste it. What do we do? If we believe them, we go after it. We pursue it. Maybe it's a new restaurant in town. Somebody tells you they've got the best Korean-style fried chicken in La Crescenta. You're going to go eat that. Someone says that's the best milk tea in San Gabriel Valley. But like, Oh, SGV is like the Mecca. That must be really good. And we all end up there. Right? That's the power of testimony. You can have it, and so we go after it. Maybe it's a new hobby. Maybe it's a new diet. A trend, a vacation spot. You know, vacations are super contagious. Somebody goes to Portland, all the friends are like, oh, we gotta go to Portland, right? Nashville was hot for a while. I had a bunch of friends who were going to New Orleans. Vacations became so contagious because of testimony and FOMO and envy. You know, people went to Iceland. They were like, Iceland was a thing. People were going to Iceland on vacation. People were like, oh my god, I gotta go there. Why? They're like, because it's beautiful. You have to experience it. Right? Like, I can. There's a a special $3.99 round trip. I'm going to go to Iceland. That's what we do. Friends, when you hear about the person and power of Jesus, how do you respond? When you hear about the opportunity and the invitation to know him and receive him and be blessed by him, how do you respond Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, when he was a child, his father heard that there was a revival breaking out in a neighboring town. Not in their town, not in their hometown, but in a neighboring town. And his father wanted his son so much, child son, school-age son, to go and experience revival because he knew that revivals were extraordinary things. He didn't know if the revival was going to come to their town It wasn't like the circus guaranteed to come to the next town. He didn't know if a revival was truly going to break out in his lifetime or his son's lifetime. But out of eagerness, out of desire, he sent his son by himself to go and experience and encounter Jesus Christ. And the movement there. In that next town. The revival going on there. Friends, we have so many opportunities to know And experience Jesus. How are you responding? Are you indifferent? Are you indifferent and careless? If so, it's because you want to be king over your life. You don't want Jesus to change your life. You want to continue to rule. The third response to Jesus' birth is worship. The third response is worship. The first is hostility. The second is indifference by the Jewish leaders. And the third is worship. And as the Magi left Herod's presence, the star that they had followed from Babylon to Jerusalem, it came again and led the Magi to Bethlehem and the place where Jesus was. And when they saw the star was leading them, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when they saw Jesus with his mother Mary, these magi fell down and worshipped him. They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh as gifts of honor and worship. Now, some preachers in Christmas sermons, they, they like to like really dig into the gifts. And they, they go behind the, the symbolism of these three gifts. And they, uh, one theory is that uh, these gifts were prophetic. Prophetic. The gold represented Jesus' kingship. The frank incense represented uh, the worship that Jesus would, deserve, uh, would be worthy of. The incense in the temple that was lit and would rise to God as a fragrant offering. That was the symbolism there. And the myrrh was a prophecy about the death of Jesus. Myrrh was used uh, for uh, em- uh, embalming dead bodies. right, And to bro- provide fragrance and scent to offset the decay. Now that's creative, it's, it's possible, plausible, plausible, uh, possible, but it's not necessary. I believe we should simply see these gifts as costly, grand, and these gifts were fit for a king. Okay? The magi believed that Jesus was the king of Israel, and they presented their very best, their very best before him. If anything, these gifts were helpful for Joseph and Mary because They were forced to start a new life in Egypt. They were exiled from their home because of Herod and his death threat towards their son Jesus. So they left, they left Bethlehem. They left Israel and traveled down to Egypt, right? And it's a good thing they had a bunch of gold, frankincense and myrrh to help them start a new life. Now here's what's significant about the Magi, okay? The Magi were the least of all people who you would think, would respond to Jesus in the most beautiful and appropriate way. These magi were Gentiles from the east, and they were seen as sinners. They weren't from the 12 tribes of Israel. right? They were astrologers and magicians. Okay, if you read through the Old Testament, right, uh, Gentile wise men are not well regarded. Pharaoh had magicians in Egypt. And what did Moses do? Right? He proved that they were feeble. He went up against them over and over again to demonstrate Yahweh's power over these Egyptian magicians. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he had, he had magi. And what did Daniel do? He exposed them as foolish. Right? They weren't able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but Daniel was. Israel looked down on magi as a whole. Okay? I know we read the New Testament story in Matthew and they like, oh, these Magi, they were good guys, right? Really good guys, worshiping and responding to Jesus. No, but the, 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 the people of God throughout the Old Testament, they regarded Magi as heretics and as sinners. One Jewish rabbi wrote, he who learns from a Magi is worthy of death. He who learns from a Magi is worthy of death. They were heretics and sinners considered outside of God's covenant people. Another thing is this. It's significant that Matthew's gospel, once again, the most Jewish of the four gospels, spends so much time honoring and recognizing the Magi. The first people outside of Jesus' family to recognize Jesus as king. Jesus as the Messiah were Gentiles, outsiders, people regarded as sinners, people regarded as heretics, people regarded as idolaters. And yet these are the people who come and worship Jesus first. What does this mean for us? Friends, this is good news because it reminds us that we too, who are far from God, We too, who are undeserving of his grace, we too, who have done so many things against God, things that we are ashamed of, things that we don't want anyone else to know, we would discount and disqualify ourselves from being able to know God and being in his family and being in his presence. You're not counted out. You can worship, you can know the king, you can enjoy his presence of grace in the gospel what a powerful story Herod didn't worship, the king of Israel didn't worship the religious leaders didn't worship and they should have been the first ones they should have been front row giving their most passionate cries of joy and adoration to Jesus the king and they weren't but the magi did the magi did the people you expect the least experience the most joy in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our call for Christmas. To worship the king. To seek Jesus in faith and rejoice that he has come. And now in closing, I want to make this very practical. Because as a preacher, I could say it. Worship Jesus. And you're like, oh, Jesus is king. Submit to him. And you're like, yeah, 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 I've heard that over and over again. Let me give you a reason I think it's the most compelling reason why. Why should you worship Jesus as your king? Why should you seek him with all that you are? Why should you seek him in faith and offer him your utmost? What makes Jesus worthy of your surrender? Okay, I mean, just think about it. Like, you know, we, we, uh, this is off script, but you know, like there's, there's the passage, you know, guard your heart, it's the wellspring of life. And we use that in like, dating context right fathers mothers they tell their daughters don't give your heart away to some random guy he's not worth it right what makes Jesus worthy of your heart worthy of your allegiance worthy of your surrender right why here's the answer because he is the kind of king the only kind of king Who has laid down his life for you. He is the kind of king who doesn't just sit on the throne and says, come worship me. Come serve me. Come glorify me. Do you know what Jesus does as our king of kings? He came to seek and save the lost. He sought you first. He loved you first. While you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, friends, do you know what it's like to seek someone who's already been seeking you? Okay. Do you know what it's like to seek someone who's already been seeking you? Do you know what it's like to to love someone who has already loved you? Friends, it's secure. It's a sure thing it's solid. It's the bride saying yes to the bridegroom as he's on one knee. It's the bride having the safety to say, yes, I do, as he has already pledged his allegiance, his devotion, his fidelity, his all to her, right? Does that make sense? The love is there. The pursuit is there. The security is there our call is to respond and say, yes, I do. I believe. Think about all the things you seek in life and the uncertainty and anxiety you have in your seeking, in your striving. For our younger people, how much anxiety do you have about graduate school, your career, getting that job, and you've been thinking about it since grade school. As you're taking your SATs, declaring your major, you're like, pre-med. And there's so much stress. You're engineering, architecture, whatever. And there's so much uncertainty, right? I mean, you just go through college and talk to how many former pre-med majors there were, right? We go in freshman year with big dreams. By junior year, you got to pivot, right? you got to Pivot. Will this business succeed? Right? Are we going to make it? Or are we going to fold? There's so much uncertainty and anxiety, and yet we work ourselves finger to the bone, chasing and seeking success. Will this medical procedure work? We seek health for ourselves, health for our loved ones. Is this relationship going to work out? Are they going to be committed to me? There's so many things that we seek and we have uncertainty. But friends, I want to tell you, everyone who seeks Jesus will not be disappointed. Everyone who seeks Jesus will not be disappointed. And I'm not here just making you vain, empty promises. I say that with full faith because Jesus promised it to us. Jesus said this to us in Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Friends, this is Jesus' promise to you. Seek him, because he's first sought after you. Love him, because he has loved you first. Would you respond to Jesus not with hostility, not with indifference, but would you respond to Jesus, your king, with worship? May the Lord give you exceeding joy as you know him, as you seek him, and enjoy him this Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us assurance, hope, and confidence to seek you and to believe that your your promises are for us. I know even right now there are people in this room who who don't doubt your existence but they, they doubt their own ability to be loved and accepted. It's not that you don't exist. It's not that you are not great, oh God. It's just that We have done so much wrong and we discount and we disqualify ourselves. But Father, I pray that as we remember the story of Christmas, help us to believe that you are a God who has first moved towards us in your love, grace, and power. Help us to personalize the promise of Christmas that, Lord Jesus, you really do love me. Jesus, you have given yourself for me. And you are freely and graciously inviting me to experience your reign and your kingship, life in your good and everlasting kingdom. Help us to personalize the gospel and the power of Christmas. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for being gracious towards us. Help us, Lord, to live in sweet surrender as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we